Hey, what's up, guys? Thank you for joining me and welcome to the show. It is a true blessing to be able to connect with the top minds and strength each week and share these stories, insights, and experiences on becoming stronger in every area of life. And now I want to do more for you. On June 16th in the Strength Connection Facebook group, I'm conducting the Kettlebell Mastery Seminar Part 2, how to actually get stronger in as little as one hour a week using only one kettlebell. In this seminar, I'm going to be discussing the training modalities and programs that I found personally and from some of the greatest coaches in the world that how to maximize your training time and learn the great skill of intuition. This has been one of the greatest experiences in training I've had and has truly changed my life and the way I train and coach. So I'm so pumped to share this with you. So there's no charge. You just need to register in the private Facebook group of the Strength Connection. In this group, I share the biggest takeaways and lessons from these amazing conversations and training and strength tips for pursuing mastery and fulfillment in your life. So this group is filled with individuals looking to take full control over their strength in their lives, and it's the perfect space to explore ideas and to share your journey with others. So just go to the Facebook groups, type in the Strength Connection, and you'll be accepted immediately. All right, once you're there, click on the registration in the group, and then you're all set. All right, thank you so much for tuning in. I'll see you on the inside. All right, welcome back, everybody. Mark, dude, it's so great to meet you. Like we were saying for like 15 minutes before we recorded here. Like we've known each other kind of, I feel like for a while, but this is the first time we were connecting. So it's great to meet you. Yeah, it's great. And it's a big pleasure and big honor to be here. So I look forward to our conversation and I'm going to do my best to give out a lot of useful information to the listeners. Yeah. Well, and we'll have a great time doing it too. It's like I said, you would, I mean, you were in this world since like almost 10 years now of, RKC back in 2012 over from the Philippines. And I think we first started kind of chatting over the book of faces from our mutual love for clean and jerk programs. I think we were both doing a clean and jerk program a while ago and just started going back and forth of tagging each other. And I was like, yeah, this guy gets it. Yeah. I believe that was three, four years ago. And man, every time I look back at that time, it's still amazing how much volume I put up overhead. I know, right? Yeah, it's amazing. That's there's so many different fun protocols going on there. But we were just chatting a bit about a million different stories of our time coming up in this community and stuff. So I'm really excited to just learn a bit more about you. I know you're an elite instructor with Strong First out from the Philippines. Um, have gone through a lot of different modalities of training. But to kind of kick this off, would like to hear a little bit about your origin story. How did you get into this world of of strength and conditioning and coaching? We okay, cool. So. I was always the skinny kid uh, growing up, but as I jokingly say, I was a jock trapped in a geek's body. So I would often dabble and experiment with different ways on how to get stronger. And I believe that it was when I was around 20 or 21, when I found a love for the push-up since I was doing martial arts then. And one of our instructors said that if you can't do your push-ups on your knuckles properly for a certain amount of reps, you won't be able to punch hard. So I took that as a challenge. And then that's when I started seriously picking up some weights. And little did I know that I would get bitten by the bug. Mm -hmm. So I fast forward a few more years I found this gym, which was really awesome at that time because when you step in, 
there were like seven or eight power racks. So it kind of looked like a high school gym, which was well-sponsored, well-funded. And I signed up for a month. Now I got to meet the head coach, who was also the director of the corporation that owned it. And he was telling me a lot about what they're planning and what he sees in the future. He mentioned on the side that they were opening an, an internship. And I said, I got some free time. If you would be open to having me, I'd be happy to help you guys out. So I got in and the short version of the long version, as our friend Brett Jones would say, was <laughs> that I was taken into the internship program a year later. I was asked if I wanted to help out because they were going to be opening their second branch. And that's how I got started coaching. And then fast forward a few uh, years later, that's when I discovered the kettlebell. Now, do you want me to get into how I discovered the kettlebell too? Sure. What was the, what was the bug of uh, like, what did you feel? Was it something you felt internally just like, wow, now I start to feel stronger after not feeling that before, but what was it about strength training that initially kind of hit you? Oh yeah. That thing. When you, when you know that you can move a certain amount of weight and you feel that it didn't really make you like you're uh, make you feel like you're going to break mm-hmm. and it, you know that you're victorious, so to speak. And how I got into the kettlebell because I was dabbling into contact sports, combat sports to be specific. So after a certain season wherein a lot of us were doing competitions, I was looking for ways because I was also acting as one like our default strength and conditioning guide. Mm-hmm. And I was looking for a tool that we could add to our arsenal. And I dusted up an old copy of Enter the Kettlebell. I don't I can't recall who, who owned it. So I started reading up about it and I said, hey, this tool actually looks pretty useful. So I was getting my hands on as much material as I could. And mm-hmm. there was a guy who was with a different organization locally. I reached out to him, learned some things, and then I did more further self-study after that. Now, while I was starting to like the kettlebell, I wasn't really in love with it yet. And then it was 2010, if I recall. I saw this book called Kettlebell Muscle by Jeff Newport, mm. and he mentioned complexes. Now, I was already using complexes then, but I was using barbells and dumbbells and some body mm-hmm. weight. And I said, since this is something that I'm familiar with, maybe I can give it a try and mm. let's see how it goes. So that was the Christmas season of 2010. And to my amazement, of course, when it's the holiday season, we don't really eat properly most of the time. But after six weeks, I put on about seven or eight pounds of muscle and I was still fairly lean. That got me hooked. Yeah. So I went deeper into it. 2012, I signed up for my level one certification in Melbourne, Australia, and I haven't looked back ever since. Wow. It's funny, they, uh, those early programs of the rite of passage from Enter the mm-hmm. Kettlebell and then Jeff's programs of the complexes, so simple mm-hmm. and still just so effective. I, st- I have a couple of people I'm working with right now who are just back on the rite of passage and just the results of it, just they never fail over and over again. Like you can keep putting out all these fancy new programs, but these things still are just such staples of programs. Yeah, for sure. I would say the Rite of Passage is like a classic Mustang. Ah, 
perfect analogy. <laughs> I love that. So then you went to Melbourne and that was the level one, you know, from there. And you told me like, that was like you, you were in the, one of like the original starts when it was a little bit, a little bit different than it is right now. What was that experience yep, it was like? Different. Oh, it, it was different. Cause I, as we were chatting offline, I mentioned to you, it was about 110 degrees. Oof. And we were in a, a football, uh, soccer field. So it was definitely challenging. And one of the funniest uh, memories I have there is as we were walking back, because remember how back then we had to bring our kettlebells and we had to put them back mm -hmm. where we got them. As I was walking back, my hands were cramping so bad and, my, and then suddenly my legs started cramping. So I had to pause every, like, every couple of steps. And then later that night, since I, uh, we were staying, my wife and I, we weren't married then, we were staying at her aunt's place and I was washing the dishes. Suddenly I froze and I couldn't move. And then she looked at me and she says, what's wrong? I said, I'm cramping all over. And then she said, let me finish that. So it was funny because I was, it, I was so stiff that I think if someone just put me on a forklift, they could move me and I wouldn't, I wouldn't even budge. Oh yeah. <laughs> Oh yeah. It's just the, the sheer volume of that first day. It's like, it's always fun. Like every, you see everybody walk in on the second day and it's like these like Frankenstein walks that are walking in. Cause you're just so stiff, but then you get a little hair of the dog and you just get a little bit of some swings, a little bit of some blood flow going in. And all of a sudden you're like ready to roll again. It's incredible <laughs> how those certs just kind of roll in that pattern. Oh yeah. Especially after day two. Cause if you remember day two was like the longest day. Mm. And then by day three, you suddenly feel recovered. Day, that day two was a, I remember, cause this is going back to 2010 for me, like 12 years ago, which was that day two, I think we did like six or seven different workouts during that day. And I remember I did not plan for like food wise very well. So like granola bars were like my best friend that day. I don't know how I got through everything we were doing because I was just hopping up on like 20 grams of carbs at a time, you know, from there. But but you guys did, I mean, you guys were doing most of the stuff you said outside. Like that's what we used to do is we used to be outside with pretty much all events. Yeah, it was outdoor. And in my case, I had like a pack of uh, cacao nibs. So <laughs> I was sharing it with everyone. I'm glad it got me by. Then I had like my milk jug which is basically like the gallon of milk and it it was filled to the brim so i was drinking my water mm -hmm. yeah so did you go into this with more of a kind of personal mission that you wanted to do this for yourself or was this something you wanted to get right into coaching with right off the bat good question since i was already doing some personal training and on a side note also in 2012 i got accepted as the strength and conditioning coach of the philippine boxing team Mm -hmm. So I was just mm -hmm. getting getting my feet uh, wet, coaching national level and, and national level and Olympic level athletes, while I was also preparing at the same time for my level one. So it was a mix of it being a challenge and also mm -hmm. to widen my toolbox. Gotcha. What was it like bringing these styles of training into boxing? Like, did you find was it a benefit of using this style of training for for boxing? For combat, for contact uh, sports, for combat sports, yes, mm -hmm. definitely. One thing I noticed, even with, uh, I would say, recreational people, I had a training partner then that I was practicing some of uh, my coaching, my kettlebell teaching on him, and his punching power went up like twenty percent according to one of our coaches. So 
that alone says something. Wow. It's, it's interesting because I did just a small bout for a while of boxing training and I loved it. I absolutely did. But the impact of hitting a heavy bag and then hitting the mitts and then sparring like overhead strength base work all of a sudden takes a little bit of a jolt, you know, from it. So I realized like some of the impact of box, I thought the ballistics of kettlebell training matched so well with, with boxing. It seemed like some of the strength stuff was a little bit different. I probably wasn't doing it right, you know, from there, but did you see was, did, did you have to like change kind of the strength components at all? Like with combat sports of doing train of doing kettlebell training? I was mixing it up. So I was originally just making them do some goblet squats, some swings, some partial get-ups, the arm bar for their uh, T-spine mobility. And I was also teaching them how to corkscrew the hands, engage your glutes, the basic stuff. Mm -hmm. Okay. Gotcha. So then after you did level one, did you go right in and start working with the other certification? Did you go to level two and like body? Because I know you're an elite instructor now. So you've gone through all the different modalities that Strong First has to offer. What was like the next venture afterwards? So after level one, uh, I did my level two in 2014 since I did level one in 2012. And mm -hmm. then I wanted to get a hold of a deeper dive of the level one material first. Then I did level two in 2014. Now, after uh, level two, 2015, I did my SFB. And then at uh, 2016, I had to research. And then, because remember, remember back then, it was harder because you couldn't do a unified research. So 2016, I had to research my SFG2. And then mm. 2017, I had to research my SFB. Then I did my SFL in 2018, summer of 2018 in Vancouver, uh, British Columbia. And then that fall, I got invited to assist at a level one in Seoul. And mm -hmm. I was lucky back then since they were slowly transitioning to the unified research. So the lead instructor for that event was John Ingham. So he allowed me to research my level two and my SFB. Gotcha. Yeah. So since I said, then, then since I already had all the certs, I think that's when they already transitioned those with active certs, all four certs to the elite status. And then the following year, 2019, was when I got to recertify my elite uh, certification. So I did that in Sydney, Australia with Sean Cairns mm -hmm. in November. And then the month after, I flew to Taiwan to help at the first SFB there. And I got to, so I recerted my elite twice in a row. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. It's, were you in the time in level two when they used to, was it a three day event rather than a two day yes. event when you went through? Cause I did that too. And this was my thought on it, that I thought that was such a, a great thing because all of the first day of level two was level one recapping. And so it was almost like yes. you went through the entire level one again in that first day. I got so much out of that of like, cause you know, just tweaking, just making the adjustments of kind of getting into the details of the natural six patterns that we normally do, getting to swing, getting into the clean. And that just helps so much getting into like the double push press and the clean and jerk and stuff. And I know they went to a two day event. I know there's probably some business reasons behind that, but that third day of just all that recap of that first day was so impactful to me. And I wish they did more of that um, and went back to something like that. It was awesome because I remember how 
the swing portion was so insightful for me because it worked a lot on the timing aspect, which is usually one of the most areas when we're teaching someone new kettlebells mm-hmm. that they run into trouble with is the timing. And when we were being taught all the drills and whatnot, I was so blown away. Like this is, I, I already knew a lot from a level one, but then it was like a good oil change and yes. gives you a, a deeper dive into it. So you actually see how you can teach it better as well. And then mm-hmm. you also polish some of the things from your other level one skills. And I remember even the get up, which I really, it's probably my favorite level one movement. I felt that my getup got so much better after that three-day weekend. Uh, and that, that was, yeah. So, and then I remember, I think it was 2015 or 2016 when they shifted it to a two-day event. But yeah, the mm-hmm. three-day event level two was definitely a good experience for me. Yeah, I remember because I did my level two in 14. A couple years later, I assisted Brett at a level two, and that was when they went to the two-day event. And mm-hmm. it was great. I mean, everybody got everything out of it, and it was a great group of people. But I remember the same thing as you, Mark. Like, I tweaked and found so many little changes that I could make in my swing work, getting that timing down. Um, the same thing, like, I had a little glitch in my in my clean, and we worked on that. I was working with Prentice on that. So that's one of the things I'd love to get your take on this of... I know a lot of people, they have gone through some of these certifications, like, boom, one after another, like, right, boom, 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 boom. I... Sp- separated them out so much from like a couple years, you know, in each one. And I felt personally for me that that helped me so much of being able to dive into the one that I just finished versus going right from like a level one, right to a level two. Or I I know a coach who went from a strong first level one, right to an FRC, right to like a constraints. Like it's so much information of so deep and you have the title next to your name. That's awesome. But the actual details of understanding it and being able to apply it, a lot of that just takes time and experience. So I'd be curious about you, like what, what you would think about that. I always follow the mantra that it would be good that you actually spent much time trying to fully digest the material. Yes. And I believe that we have that saying in strong first and inch wide, mile deep. Mm-hmm. So I could share with you one personal experience that I had is when I did my SFB, it was like drinking from a fire hose because you know how we teach all these tension techniques at the two-day event. And then I kept practicing those. Now, when I assisted at the Taipei SFB, and then I was going through the material again, it was like I was seeing that there were still some areas that I still could learn something. So it just shows that you can't you really need to spend so much time learning. Yes. But then there's also you also have to spend a lot of time aside from unlearning. You need to polish things since there are always more efficient ways of teaching and applying a technique and a principle. Yeah. I agree. It's like you can get so deep into the details of it. Like I said, like you can a lot of times, especially with coaching people, I think especially with just a few different movements, you can get them 80% there within a week or two, you know, <laughs> of just getting it down. The other 20% might take a lifetime just to work on and, and complete. But I always, maybe it was my own ignorance, but it was every two years that you had to recertify. I thought that like, all right, that just meant like, all right, you're going to the next one there. Like I didn't even think of like going to something kind of in between those times. <laughs> And personally for me, like it found like, okay, cool. I really dove deep into level one for a couple of years and then went into level two. And I think it's just an important thing as coaches, not just in strong first, whatever you do, like whatever you learn or you get in, like 
take a deep dive and really practice it and ingrain it in your body so you understand it and then go and learn the next thing afterwards. And I think that just is a good principle of coaching, you know, just to work with. Oh, yeah. So I was telling a student before that I said, I have done this move countless times, but even up to now, I'm still finding ways that I could do them better. So if you feel that you already know it, I say, try to take it apart and then see how you can make it better. Because there's always something that you could do better. Let's use, let's say the get up, for example, from the alignment, where you place your hand, how you sweep, uh, sweep the leg through, how you stand up, how you grip the handle. There are always some, some small details that you could always improve on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And sometimes it's the details that you forget about. And then just somebody reminds you of it. Like I just did my research of in, in the dome and in my one arm, one leg push up. like I did it fine. But just, I remember, I, I think it was, it was either Annalisa or Brett or just like, look at your, look at your same side hand when you go down. And I was like, oh shit. Yeah. That's the optics right there. That just added a little bit more. I remember learning that before, but it's just re-getting it in and just reapplying it. So it's like always, it's like always these little details that we find of getting in. That's why I think it's like spend some time in each modality for a period of time before you just go on to the next one. Yeah, for sure. So in my case, when I assisted Sean Cairns at the level two, when he was teaching the tension techniques, he explained the concept of dominanta. So for our, our listeners, the concept of dominanta is you apply the tension needed to get the work, the rep done, but the main focus is to make the reps, to make the lift. So keyword dominant, right? The dominant thought, the dominant thought process should be to make the reps. So sometimes we're focusing too much on, am I engaging my glutes? Am I engaging my lats? And all of these things. And then you forget that these things are supposed to make the rep better, not become the, uh, the focus that you're, you're losing your, you're losing the attention on the, on the lift. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So when you got back, you started applying this with your training. What was the response to it from uh, like students and clients? Was it a pretty easy response and was it received really well right off the bat or did you have to do a little bit of work to get people to buy in? There were some who were already excited to learn about it. And then there were some that, took a while before they warmed up to it since it's very counterintuitive to what we're used to seeing for some, they could not accept it at first, but then sometimes they just have to see that, Oh, they're getting stronger or they're moving better. And of course they start to look better in the mirror. And then that's what gets them hooked. Mm -hmm. What about the athletes, like the, the Olympians and like the boxing athletes mm. that you work with and stuff? Like, was that an easy kind of transition to bring this style of training into it? I know sometimes they're not so receptive of making changes with programming. There were some, some who liked it. And then there were some who were still not uh, responsive to it. Since it's not the floor of the gas pedal type of training, right? So mm-hmm. some of them had to feel that it challenges them. So like for some of them, when I was demonstrating the one-arm push-up and the one-arm one-leg push-up, for them, that felt like a challenge. So that was what got me the buy-in. And for others, it was the pistol. Mm. So, finding, so, the cha- always, oh, so yeah. finding the challenge for them. Like yeah, what's, yeah. what's the most challenging for them? So kind of get into the mindset of it. Yeah. So you, it's, some, you, it's always you have to speak someone's language so that you could connect with them. Mm-hmm. 
Hmm. It's it is. It's like it's always that's kind of the art of coaching and right there. It's like kind of find how that person learns like with an Olympic athlete and like an elite athlete, like they're used to that competition of something that's really challenging on them. So finding that one exercise or that one tool that kind of makes them feel like, Oh, I can really improve on this and kind of throwing that into the mix right off the bat. I can see that that's a really good concept. And yeah, for some of them, when they felt that they were struggling to do a movement, that's what got them. Okay. Now I, they had to go uh, pun intended bite down on their mouthpiece. (laughs) <laughs> and really, really, really dig in. So that's when they felt, oh, uh, all right, this feels like a challenge. So I'm going to, I'm going to see if I could actually impress my coach. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then at well, the same time, if they're, I would often tell them that, Hey, you don't need to impress me. If you're doing, if you're doing the reps, you're doing fine. The last thing I want uh, for you is to get hurt. And, but there were some who were, and I say, and I say this, if you're dealing with national up to Olympic level athletes, some of these guys are just movement wizards. They pick things up rather quickly. Yeah. That's the weird thing with top athletes, right? It's like you just teach them anything or just show them something. They just naturally just grow with it. Like I knew I had a couple of young baseball players that I worked with and you introduce them to anything and they just get better at it right away. It's like, you know, it's just that genetic component in there. What about the body weight work that you do? Like, do you find that the body weight stuff, do you teach a lot of that with your clientele, like the pistol, like one arm push-ups and stuff, like, or is that kind of more of accessory stuff? Now it's more of accessory stuff, but I would use a hard, uh, the plank, the hard style plank, mm-hmm. and the hanging leg raise, and of course the pull-ups. As I would say, the low hanging fruit. That once they get a hang, uh, they get the feel of it. It's easier to sell them the other stuff. So, like recently, I was teaching one of my students, how to, how you apply the hard style plank to the ab wheel rollout. And he noticed that mm. he got like 20% more ab activation because I was experimenting uh, on it myself so I could get more out of the ab wheel rollout than I did before. Because of course, how, how do you progress it? You start from kneeling and then eventually start, go to standing. You do a partial standing rollout, eventually try to do a full rollout. Now I was thinking there might be a better way to get more out of the movement without having to follow the usual progression. So what I found is you find that alignment and when you can actually pre-engage your abs right before you roll out, you get a lot better movement without having uh, the movement compensations that usually come along with the movement. Mm. Yeah, it's inter- that's interesting. The body weight type training is so interesting to me because it was it was one of those events that I went to that I felt like, crap afterwards. Like I, like I felt good, but it was just so sorry. I almost felt like I had the flu, like flying home after that event. Cause you just create so much tension. And something I think we forget about is body weight training is actually one of the hardest things to learn because you have no external load to kind of force you to engage. Like you have to naturally from your head down, engage these muscles, but it's like, transferring that into clientele, especially with general population, like how many want to do like a one arm, one leg type push up. Like they don't ever have to do that in their life in order to do it. But the hard style aspects of what you've uh, learned, I just real, I just realized that it's like, yeah, those like those principles behind it just translate into everything else that we do, whether you have a kettlebell in your hand or a barbell or just building strength. I think the body weight is so important for the skill development of strength over anything else. Absolutely. And you have to learn to find your ideal linkage so that you could get the maximum uh, tension production 
for you. Because the way I am designed, the way my structure works, it may not work for you, for example. So you're going to have to make some minor adjustments on your case, and then you'll be able to get the maximum tangent production. So that's what I would often teach every, everyone who I'm coaching is make some adjustments. Let's see. I'll give you what's standard, quote unquote, and then let's see how much tension you can produce. And then let's tweak it a bit and then see if you get more or less. And then mm -hmm. uh, we'll take note of that and then adjust from there. So like nowadays, since gyms have been opening up and I have been doing a hybrid format, so I teach at a gym roughly once to twice a week. So I get to touch a barbell once a week. What I would do in place of overhead pressing with a barbell is aside from kettlebell work, I've been reintroducing the pike push-up and I'm trying to find that groove that feels exactly like how you would press a barbell overhead. Mm. And as you mentioned, so I'm, since my hands are on the floor, I'm trying to constantly produce tension by constantly pushing against the floor. And I found that I found that groove for me that works really well because I could feel it exactly like how I would uh, overhead press a barbell. And it's cool because that means I don't really have to worry too much that I don't get to touch a barbell that, uh, as often as I mm -hmm. would like. But at least I know that the strength is there. So I'd like to test eventually uh, my handstand push-ups again and see if mm -hmm. see if there it's still there or it's something that I need to practice again. Because one thing about skill development is there are some skills that even if you don't touch them for a while, they stick with you. And then there are some that they kind of slip away. And then once you practice them again, they come right back. Yeah. Which ones do you think are the ones that stick with you? So like so easily kind of like the riding a bike ones. Mm, I would say that for me, the deadlift, because I remember mm -hmm. when we were on lockdown, I did not touch a barbell for I think five or six months. And then the first day I got back, I could still pull double my body weight. Mm -hmm. The ones that slide quickly would be overhead pressing and barbell squats. So my barbell squats dip quickly if I don't touch a barbell within two weeks. Mm. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> it is. Barbell is so interesting. It's interesting with the different modalities. Like you said, like the body weight allows you to really find that linkage, which I think is such a great, it's a, such a valuable thing that we could learn about our body of just how our own architecture works. Like that's kind of the intuitive type of training. Like there's standards that we can follow, but you have to find your own architecture. The barbell, it's kind of, you kind of have to fit yourself around the barbell. It doesn't really give much. Kettlebells are probably somewhere, kettlebells are probably somewhere in the middle of going on. In between, there. yes. Yeah. But I thought that's a really interesting concept of the like body weight training. It, it allows you to find what groove is best for you. And a pike pushup is, I think, an incredibly underrated exercise for people to work with. Like it just allows you to get comfortable being in an upside down position if you're not ready to like kind of get into a full, you know, handstand type work. But it does relay that carryover into doing something like an overhead barbell press or a military press. Yes, and for sure, if you want to make it harder, you can just elevate your feet and then elevate your hands. Mm -hmm. Pause in between reps. As a friend said, once you understand the principles, they are at your disposal. That's that's a beautiful line right there. Yeah. So, and so yeah, for everyone out there, it's just you have to find exactly what uh, what works for you. As you were saying, it uh, training intuition is a skill that uh, takes a while to develop. So. If you don't have that good communication with your body, sometimes you 
it's good that you start out with like writing out what what feels good for you and what doesn't and then use that as your guide and then gently challenge yourself as you go along some people they're just they just naturally have uh this ability to communicate with their body so they're already highly intuitive they could they could just write programs on the fly i believe brett does that with his iron cardio so mm -hmm. he's really in tune with his body so if you're not at that level that's fine just make your own flow chart your own map and mm -hmm. eventually after a few years of training under your belt you'll definitely have an idea what works for you and what doesn't yeah the, the intuitive trainer, I've talked to Brett a lot about iron cardio work and his, his book. And I, I hope it's out soon for everybody to do because he's phenomenal. But his uh, the intuitive type of training is interesting because it doesn't have to be, I don't think, one versus the other. I think that's kind of the misconception of it. If you need to have actually have like a set structured plan and just follow it to a T no matter what. Or it needs to be completely free thinking with no borders of anything. It's like, I think it really, like most things, it lies in the middle somewhere where have a structure of like iron cardios, you know, clean, press, squat, snatch, you know, there's a bunch of different variations you can do with that. And I know how Brett works that is like, oh, I'm feeling really good today. Oh, I'm going to go into a traveling twos or I'm going to do ladders because squats feel really good right now. And then from talking with, you know, with Tim Almond a bit about his hard style method and the joy of training is the best way to get into intuitive training is you have to drop your ego down, like play with a bell that is not ultimately very heavy for you kind of get that feel like that joyous type feel to it. And I think if you find that, then not only do you get stronger, but it's actually a really just fun way to train. Like you just feel good the rest of the day. Yeah, for sure. Our friend Grant Anderson has this term he likes using called chopping wood. So yeah. it's something that you could do on a frequent basis and it wouldn't burn you out. I use a similar term. I call it dropping dimes in a piggy bank. Okay. Since you don't, Ooh, like you don't feel, yeah, yeah. So it doesn't feel like it's a burden, right? If you drop a dime, just drop a dime. So, and you, these, you want to look for the dropping dime or chopping wood type of uh, training that you could do even on your worst day and then make your worst day training stronger. So eventually what you could do now would probably be something that you could do on an off day. And then, you yes. know, you've gotten stronger, but you didn't really have to break yourself down to achieve mm -hmm. that level. Yeah. And it's funny, you know, sometimes I think like I've, you know, me and Chris used to you know, call it the dictator bell. It's like, you have that one mm -hmm. bell that you can just do anything with. And that's kind of the one that is like your Goldilocks bell. Like, you know, do I feel really good today or do I not feel good today? And for some reason, like the 24 K just snatching, it just feels so fluent and clean with it. But even like I like I did too much over this weekend. I was like, oh, I'm just going to do a light workout. So, but I did over 200 snatches. I took a, plenty of time to do it, but still, I was like, still got 200 snatches in a volume. Like that's not really a light day in there. It's still pretty. It's it's still a pretty good amount of load in there. Yeah, so still you, 200 snatches. <laughs> exactly. It's like sometimes you still have to play around with these things of working with. So, what's kind of your protocol that you're following right now? Are you doing a specific plan that you're working on, or kind of playing around more? Yep. So it's still playing around, but what I would normally do is let's I start my week on a Monday. So on Mondays I would be doing some light some light to medium snatches to prep myself for my main session. And then after that I would do some swings and some get-ups, finish off with some ab work, which is either I do some leg raises or some front lever work. Mm. And then for that this is Mondays and Wednesdays. 
Tuesdays and Thursdays, I would warm up with some bent pressing and windmills. Mm. And then I would do some single bell complexes or iron, iron cardio, or I would do some double bell overhead work and then finish off with some ab wheel rollouts. Mm. And then for Fridays, since I, that's when I teach in person, I would do some barbell work on Fridays. Gotcha. And then I would rest on Saturdays, Sundays. I would do a light version of what I do on Tuesdays and Thursdays. So right now I am doing a pseudo peaking approach because I am going to have to research soon. So I am working with a 24 and I'm slowly trying to get to about 80 snatches in under four minutes. Now, the good thing is I have the privilege of being able to test with a 20. So, but I'm training with a 24 and on days that I feel good, I would do something like QND with a 28. Mm. So that would make my 20, my test belt, the 20 kilo feel a lot lighter. Yes. Oh, there we go. Have you, have you always done the, the ab work as kind of like an accessory afterwards, or is that something fairly new? It's fairly new. So it got started a few years back when I injured myself and then I was messaging Jeff Nupert and then he asked me a question, which is how often do you do dead bugs? And I said, I do it part of my warm ups. And he, and he said, how much do you do? So I told him the exact amount. And I said, I want you to try to do this much. And then I want you to add a few, he gave me a few details. And then fast forward last year, I was following a, a, a neck knot, neck knot and neck turn protocol by Alex Salkin. Okay. And then, it, yeah, yeah. So it, it felt really good for those who aren't familiar. If, if you are on your back and then you move, your, you tuck your chin, you could actually engage your abs. So mm-hmm. my abs felt a lot stronger. So I started exploring other movements. So whenever I'm at the gym, since I have a very good sturdy bench and a pole, I would be doing dragon flags. And mm. when, then I, so I started doing, doing dragon flags after I felt my abs getting stronger. And then I explored the ab wheel because an ab wheel is, is dirt cheap. You could buy it at the fifth store over there in the U.S. for about $5, correct? Yep. And if mm-hmm. you're lucky, you could find one for a uh, yeah, you, you can, can get find a one heavy, at the dollar store. A duty one for like nine ninety nine. It's like yeah, exactly. <laughs> like 10 bucks. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. it's a good return of investment. So I was doing I was doing dragon flags and I did the ab wheel rollout. Now uh, I would I am now dabbling into the into some front lever work and I was pleasantly surprised that I didn't really have to start from the lowest progression. So for those who have done the SFB, if you read the segment on the front lever there. That is definitely true. If you have enough st- uh, strength in your base, that's why you, you want to focus on building enough strength. You could probably go straight into the single leg front lever variation. Mm. It's funny. I'm I'm so happy that you do the ab work afterwards because that's something that, like talking about, like you said with squats, like if you don't do it for a couple weeks, like you feel it. Mm-hmm. If I don't do some consistent ab work as accessories afterwards, I lose it like that. Like I used to be a great hanging leg raise guy. And then all of a sudden I didn't do it for a little bit. And then all of a sudden it's like, wow, this is the hardest thing that I've ever done. (laughs) It's like, so I, I think sometimes we, I mean, the great, the big lifts, you know, your presses, your squats, all that stuff. I mean, those are vital and important. Those should be the entrees of it. But I think sometimes we forget that you can do some accessory work that is really going to benefit you in everything. And I think ab work is one of those things of 
dead bugs or ab wheel. Ab wheel is, I think, the greatest exercise. It's like, it's so cheap. You can do it. If you have a couple of paper plates, you can figure it out, you know, kind of how to modify it and work with like a, with like a smooth surface, but just grab an ab wheel. I think it's phenomenal. There, another option is if you're, you don't have an ab wheel, you could also use like cloth rags or you could buy the uh, furniture sliders. Those are also, they're cheap. Oh yeah. The furniture sliders are great. We used to even just do, um, kind of just work with inchworms just out, you know, just getting that push up position and just a little walk out and back. Um, those things are just phenomenal. Anything too. It's funny. Like I think a lot of people, especially strength coaches have like mock some people who do ab workouts because you see, maybe they're doing like bicycles and crunches. It's like, Mm -hmm. yeah, I think there's a better use of your time to do, but like, hanging leg raises or ab wheels or dead bugs, something that's really driving that interior core of going on, like that is going to impact you in your deadlift and in your strength to work with. No doubt. Especially if you could do post ab wheel rollouts. Now those are really challenging and they have a significant carryover. So I have a training partner at the gym where I teach and we were originally just bump into each other, uh, exchange pleasantries. And then one day I saw him doing Ab wheel rollout, and then I saw him pausing at well, at the extended phase, and then I said, "Those are awesome." And he says, "Yeah, my coach wrote them in, and I feel the benefit." And then we started chatting, and that's how we ended up becoming training partners. Oh, that's awesome! Oh, very cool. So you got to restart again soon. Are you assisting somewhere? Or are you going to be a student again? I am very fortunate that I am going to be assisting in India and nice. Chennai. I'm going to be assisting Sean Karen. So. It's always a pleasure whenever I get to learn from Sean again, since mm-hmm. that guy is a well of knowledge. I said I got a chance to meet him for the first time in Chicago. One of the nicest men I've ever met, but he looks like a bear. Like he's, <laughs> he's one, he is a big he is a big dude. You forget you don't see how big some of these people are in there. He is one strong guy. One strong guy, one wise guy. Hella funny. <laughs> oh, that's great in India. Oh, I didn't even know they were doing certs in India. Yeah, they have a community uh, community there. So it's going to be interesting because it's my first time to go to India. So and it's also going to be my first time to interact with the community there. So it's going to be a new experience for me. Oh, nice. Awesome. Good. Okay. So are you following kind of just like a research-based program right now? Or are you kind of just working on a little bit of everything? We're working on a little bit of everything, but making sure that the requirements and, and the standards are going to be checked off the boxes. Nice. Oh, that's awesome, man. Good. So, well, dude, I mean, it's been awesome connecting with you. I know it's been a long time coming. I feel like we needed to have this conversation because I've followed you for a long time, seeing everything that you're doing in the Philippines, especially in this world. So I'm so happy to meet somebody really across the other side of the world who's, you know, got such great programs going on, great coaching. So it's been awesome. Yeah. It's, it's great to connect with you too. And I still, I remember the first time we were talking about, uh, online back then about the clean injured program. I, I don't think I got back to you, but I rem- I was doing that because I wanted to get the standard for the clean injured uh, from return of the kettlebell, which is 10% of your body weight for reps. So that yeah. back then I was around 148 to 150. So I would need 15 reps. So my all time best for the clean and jerk with a double 32 was 10 reps. And when you think about it, Double 32s, those are, those are a pair of 70-pounders, so they're basically my body weight. Yeah. Oof. That's brutal right there. It's crazy. The, the clean and jerk is one of those movements that I think is, 
I wouldn't, I don't, I won't say it's underrated because GS has built a whole sport around the clean and jerk from there, but it is like my favorite movement to work with. Like there is nothing that feels more athletic than doing a clean and jerk based program. I love complexes. I have to say this, but I agree with Owen Chow that the one thing that's fun about the clean and jerk is that it allows you to move heavier weight. That's it. It's just fun to move heavier weight from there. Complex. I've talked to Jeff a couple different times and I've said, I've simultaneously praised him for everything he's doing and cursed him out at the same time of doing those <laughs> complexes because it's like, because he put out kettlebell muscle, which was awesome. But then he goes to throw out even more kettlebell muscle, which has like 30 different programs in there that are just, and I was right in the middle of the, the wolf program, which is pretty much all legs, which is just, Oh God, I still just want to throw up just thinking about that program. <laughs> but yeah, complexes are, I mean, bang for your buck, just time-wise on it. I don't think there's much better that you can do. Oh yeah. Uh, so my wife loves complexes since she's an IT professional by trade mm. and with her, with her setup, since she's also working from home when it's the afternoon over here, she has like a 30 to 45 minute window. She'd be jumping right in and uh, doing her uh, kettlebell work. Oh, that's awesome. And yeah. Yeah, and she she loves double uh, she loves double bell work. Now, one of the funniest stories I could share when she was training is there was this one program, double bell program. I think it was from Hector Gutierrez Jr. I have to I have to check. So it was a heavy day, and when she was done, she opened the door of, of her workspace, and then she said, "Is this the heavy? Is this the hardest day of the whole plan?" And I said, "I believe so." Okay, good, because if you make me do anything harder than this. You're going to pay. <laughs> oh, it, it is. It's like, it takes like probably like 15 minutes to actually go through like the whole thing, but it's freaking brutal as can be from there. So now I'm feeling like I might yeah. got to get into that again. So finish <laughs> yeah. up this gonna, press work and then go. Yeah. I'm going to have to look up, uh, I'm going to look up the, some of the plans that I got from Hector before, since it's, I know it's plan strong based. I know you mm-hmm. did plan strong. So you're probably going to, you probably understand it way more than I do, but I th- but I think the total is like 150 something number of lifts. Yeah, the NLs on some of those is just ridiculous of how you get into yeah. and all the all the math of it. It's like, yeah, okay, that sounds good. But, yeah, um, so you have an idea. So that's why that's why she was so <laughs> upset after. To put it lightly. Oh, that's great. So, um, well, Mark, if people want to follow you, check out more of the work. Like, what's the best place that we can uh, send the listeners? I am all over social media, so. Facebook, just type in my name, and then Instagram, M, uh, the letters M and L, so that's Mama and Lima, Girovic Strong, also same handle for Twitter. Beautiful. And yeah, so my email is uh, girovicstrong at gmail.com. I mean, I'd be happy to connect with people all over the world. So, I mean, I'm here in the Philippines, you're in upstate New York, mm-hmm. I have students in Asia, I also have students in North America, so I mean meeting different people from all walks of life all around the globe and you're all united because you are seeking to be better versions of yourself and you love strength. It's just an awesome thing. That's perfectly said, man. I love it. So dude, so great to meet you. I'm so happy that we did this and got on. I'll have to have you back at some point. We'll keep jamming after you get back from India and, uh, Oh, sure. I appreciate, I appreciate your time, man. So listeners, thank you so much for connecting. I'll catch you on the next one. Bye.
Thank you so much for joining me today. I hope you found some great value here. And if you like this episode, please drop a comment and leave us a five-star rating and review. It does more to build the show than you can imagine. And do not forget to check out and join the Strength Connection Facebook group. In this group, I share the biggest takeaways and lessons from these amazing conversations, as well as training and strength tips for pursuing mastery and fulfillment in life. It's, this group is filled with individuals looking to take full control over their strength, and it's the perfect space to explore new ideas and to share your journey. And you'll also get exclusive access to the Strength Connection Mastery Seminars. It's a deep dive into the physical, mental, and spiritual training that you can begin using immediately. So do not wait. Go now. Seriously, go. I right, much love to you. Thank you so much, and I'll catch you on the next one.